Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, the co-host of this podcast. What's up, guys? Hi, you guys. Hey, Aaron. Hey, did you uh, do an interview this week? I sh- oh, I- oh, I did. I did. Uh, I talked to Eric Latch. You may have seen an article in The New Yorker. I think it came out at the very end of January about various people in the... Um, Retinue? No, uh, that's is that the right word? What's a word for it? I don't it? care if it is the right word. I, I, th- I think you should go with it. You just use retinue. The hangers-on around the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, uh, including a bishop who also went viral after being robbed of hundreds of thousands of uh, dollars worth of jewelry on his live stream. And that's really only the beginning of the bizarre occurrences uh, documented in this um, piece. Eric uh, writes for The New Yorker. He's written for The New Yorker for many years. I guess the thing that I was kind of interested in talking to him about, I mean, I apologize to the listeners who feel like this show is overly New York-centric. You can just turn this episode off if that's your feeling. If you perhaps are interested in local New York City politics and how local city politics are covered by reporters, which is quite different than how one covers, say, national, like, presidential race politics. I think this episode will be very interesting. I think it's the all-time record for the most times Tammany Hall has been referenced (laughs) in a long-form podcast episode. Um, So we talked about all of that and also how he got here. He's actually done both. He's covered the, you know, the presidential uh, trail, and he's also covered, like, local city council politics in New York City. I don't think anyone should turn this episode off. Our editor, Susan Peterson, she listened to it, doesn't live in New York, found it fascinating. Keep listening. It's great. Who doesn't want to hear me use Tammany Hall too many times in a row? (laughs) I'm going to start calling you (laughs) Boss Tweed on this podcast. (laughs) We make the show with Vox. Thanks to them for their partnership. And now here's Aaron with Eric Latch. Welcome to the Long Farm Podcast, Eric Latch. 
thanks so much for having me. Um, okay. I have a preamble to our conversation because I asked you to come on because I read a piece of yours in the New Yorker about how do, how do I say it? Lamore Whitehead? Am I saying that right? Lamore Whitehead. Yeah. yeah. Lamore Whitehead. Yeah. Uh, who is an associate of Eric Adams, the mayor of New York city, but it's also about the larger milieu of characters with indictments that have interacted with Eric Adams. Right. So I'm reading this article, loving it already. And then I come to the part about the two brothers who own Forno Rosso Pizza. Yes. Now, people who are listening to the long form podcast for a long time, we had a studio above Forno Rosso. <laughs> on Gold, on first, Gold Street. On Gold Street. It was the first offices of Pineapple Street Media, my co-host Max Linsky's company, which graciously allowed us to tape in their studio. And there was an ongoing dispute because they would aggressively throw kegs and you could hear their kegs <laughs> clanging around on the podcast. While you were recording. Amazing. This has nothing to do with what I want to ask you. I just wanted to insert that in there, that there is a long form podcast tie in. Yeah. No, now uh, you're making me story. feel like I should have called you guys. I, if I had known. Not only that, but I now live on Long Island and I went shopping for a car. Didn't end up getting it, but I test drove a Honda at the Honda dealership that Lamar Whitehead was convicted of identity theft from. Baron Honda. Incredible number of tie-ins to this story. <laughs> I always thought Forno Rosso was a bit suspicious and that it didn't seem to really operate as a potential money-making business. Right. Like you would go in there sometimes and be like, yeah, we'll have a glass of wine and the pizza. And they're like, uh, we don't actually have food today. <laughs> like there is something bizarre. You've been to businesses like this in New York city yeah. where you go in and you go, how are they paying the mortgage on this? How does this work? Actually, that's a great place to start. So you, you report about local government for the New Yorker and kind of just like stuff happening around New York. Yeah. If you walked into Fornarosa, would that be like a potential story for you? Where, where do these stories kind of start for you? Um, Restaurants are always an interesting story. Uh, I don't know if I had the Aaron Lammer experience of walking into Forno Rosso and then not having food on a particular day that I would think, hmm, this is definitely a story. But, you know, the other restaurant that the Petrosian brothers, these friends of the mayors who we're talking about, ran, was called Woodland. I don't know if you remember that place on, on Flatbush Avenue. Never was a Woodlands patron. I mean, that place, you know, at its peak, which is about a decade ago, and I, I was living not far from there. And I remember, you know, it was both a hub of Black Brunch, like a very popular weekend spot. And it was also like engaged in a series of like very dramatic fights with the neighborhood about noise. And as I was working on this story, which let me sort of think about and write a little bit about Woodland, I was like, yeah, of course, in retrospect, like Woodland was a story. Like Woodland was a super interesting story. So for people who haven't read the story, just give me the sort of elevator of what the story is about. Yeah, so the story is basically an investigation of Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City's long relationship with this fraudster church leader from Brooklyn. This is a guy, Bishop Lamar Whitehead, who was in the news a lot last summer. First, he had kind of claimed to have helped negotiate the surrender of a man wanted for murder directly with Adams, which sort of got some headlines and sort of drew some questions that the mayor was sort of then prompted to answer. 
And then in July, Whitehead's church was robbed in the middle of a Sunday service. And he, you know, wears a lot of fancy jewelry, designer clothing. And basically like these guys came into his church and took what was reported as like a million dollars worth of jewelry and clothing from him while he was delivering, you know, his sermon on a Sunday morning. And that event in part because it was live streamed and then there was video clips sort of all over the internet went super viral. And then it was like, there was a whole bunch of questions over the summer of like, kind of who is this guy? What's the relationship exactly with Adams? He keeps dropping Eric Adams's name. And, you know, my work kind of started from there, just trying to get some sort of answers to those questions, which turned out to be um, really interesting and, and deep and kind of go way back in Brooklyn politics. So you have these well-known events already, this robbery at the church, this thing. These are widely reported on. And they suggest a larger constellation of interest in this person and his relationship to Eric Adams. What did you feel like you needed to get to turn this into a story? Like, what what, what did you need to get for it to be more than what was already known about this? I think that the, the place it started for me was actually... You know, I, I had covered the mayoral race where Adams, you know, ran and won. And, you know, even back then, there had been stories about um, these these friends of Adams's, you know, the Petrosian brothers being sort of probably the most kind of well-known. And, you know, it was just a category of person that was relatively unusual and, you know, and kind of unexplained. It was just like the mayor didn't just have associates and aides and, you know, connections and donors. He also had these people who he referred to as his, you'd read articles and it'd be like, somebody would be described and be like a friend of the mayor's, you know? And, and then he had even sort of a more specific category, which was um, mentee, you know, that he was saying that he was mentoring um, people with dark pasts, but often they were people who had been, you know, accused of official wrongdoing sort of in, in, in public posts, or like in the case of the Petrosian brothers, like complicated financial crimes, like not just like big brother mentoring, but sort of like, who are these guys? Like, where do they come from? And, you know, so then when Whitehead appeared in the news, like that was it, that was the extent of the thought. It was like, okay, well, here's like another one, you know, what's the story? And, you know, and then I just started calling people around and it just sort of very quickly became obvious that it's just like, you know, that people had been telling Eric Adams, Lamar Whitehead stories for a long time. And there was lots of them and there was lots of different contexts for them, like church people and business people and politics people and people who had been in Whitehead's life, people who had been in Adams's life. So there was just like, well, what's what is this relationship, basically? Um, and so that's kind of how it started. I'm interested in when you're reporting in this kind of a climate. This guy Whitehead and many of these people are just trailing grudges behind them. Like uh, the phrase axe to grind would apply to almost everyone who uh, appears in the story and their relationship to the main character in the story. How do you sort of sort out facts from the fact that a lot of these people are very angry at him? These are former business partners or whatever. Like, how do you start sort of corroborating the account of people who have a vested interest in the downfall of this person and their businesses. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess there, there was three ways that I thought about it as I was working on, on the story. Like one is, you know, a lot of these people had corroborating paper, 
you know, they had emails or documents or, you know, like text messages or something that they could show me that was contemporaneous to the events that they were describing, you know, that then just made me feel a degree of confidence in kind of what they were telling me. Um, the other was the number of echoes, you know, where it was like sources who had nothing to do with each other, who had never spoken, you know, who were describing completely different situations were saying similar things, you know? And so it was like, okay, like that also just, you know, up the level of confidence and like, well, if one person saw it this way and another person saw it this way and they had nothing to do with each other, there's something here, you know? And then the third thing is Whitehead himself. Um, basically Whitehead runs a small church in Brooklyn called Leaders of Tomorrow International Ministries, um, which he founded kind of not long after he left prison in 2013. And, you know, since then, for the last decade, he has spent countless hours on Facebook and Instagram, like live streaming and posting and getting into fights with people. And so, like, actually, the other thing that was happening was, like, you know, I had heard that basically Whitehead and Adams went to Woodland together, you know, this restaurant run with the Trojan Brothers. And then I'm like, sort of went back and looked at Whitehead's Facebook account. And sure enough, there's a photo of like that he had posted of him and Adams like coming out of Woodland Restaurant and him being like, I just had dinner with my mentor here. You know, so it was like, you know, kind of like overlap and echoes. And then like Whitehead himself, who just, you know, he was not hiding stuff. He was out there sort of talking about all these things as they were happening. You've been uh, covering sort of local New York government uh, for a while. This is not the first time you've written about Eric Adams by any stretch. Um, you're kind of like on his ass a little bit. And my guess is he is aware that that is your role and that you are probably preparing a story like this. Like, how does that affect what you're doing? The sort of I don't like, think I don't, I don't I don't see it as my role. I mean, I, I think that the mayor is an interesting figure. I think Adams is an interesting figure. I started writing about him during the campaign. You know, I've written about politicians a bunch. Like a lot of politicians are kind of boring. You know, the lives they lead are boring. And like, you know, the way that they approach their work is boring. And they often don't have a lot of interesting things to say. And like, I don't put Adams in that category by any stretch. I think that he's like a you know, he was a cop for 22 years in New York City during the 80s and 90s. You know, so during the campaign, I, I wrote a piece about Adams's formative years in the New York City Police Department, where he he was a kind of like low level officer in the transit department. Um, and, and then we talked about sort of the role of cops and, and sort of how he sees policing as a profession and all that stuff, which I think is, you know, he, he has stuff to say. And so it's like, it's not that I, it's not that I, um, came at the Whitehead story from a feeling of like, my job is like investigating Eric Adams. I just think he's a important and interesting figure. And then the other sort of element is just that even though he's been around in New York for a long time and some certain New Yorkers have a long memory of him, he's a relatively new figure, you know, in, in a lot of ways. And the city is kind of just getting to know its mayor. And so I, you know, I, it's not just about like, dirt. It's also just about going back to Eric Adams's history and story. You know, that I think is, is one of the values of, uh, you know, for, and even for me for doing the work was just kind of like learning about that stuff. How do you not, I'm not asking how do you, but how did you think about Eric Adams's assertion that he is being unfairly connected with Lamar Whitehead, that he is being held to a standard that other people who've held the role were not held to. Yeah. I mean, so this has come up, you know, even outside the context of, of this story in my work, 
when the press has sort of dug into um, things about Adams that are not necessarily positive. Um, he's warned people about the difference between scrutiny in general and scrutiny of like black politicians, which like, you know, he said when, when the New York Times looked into his fundraising during the campaign season, and he issued a statement saying, you know, the candidates, black candidates for office, especially those who come from poor backgrounds, working class backgrounds, like he does, like are often subject to a different standard, you know, which is true. Uh, you know, but then he said that he hoped that by becoming mayor, that he could sort of create one standard for all. And that's the part where I'm like, wait, wait a second. Like, but do you mean a higher standard or, or a lower standard? You know, it's like, which way are we moving the bar? Um, so, you know, his response to the Whitehead story was basically to say that it was full of innuendos. <laughs> Fine. Fair enough. Uh, you know, or I don't think it is, but it's not a story that is a good story for him. So why should he like, like it? Um, you know, but he also just wants to treat this stuff as like ancient history, like so ancient that like, who could possibly care about it? Like he said, like, everybody wants to go investigate, like, you know, Eric Adams, did you like steal a donut, like at Bayside High School or whatever? And it's like, but that's not what this story is about. This story is about the key years of Eric Adams' like political formation. I mean, this is when, you know, he goes from being kind of a backbencher in Brooklyn politics, not even in New York politics, in Brooklyn politics, to mayor of the city, you know, over a 10 year period. And really, it takes a lot of people by surprise. Like, his record as mayor is just a year old. I mean, he was sworn in a year ago, but he had a 20 year career in politics before being mayor that people know very little about. You know, it's not about like being on him. It's just about like, that's a long story, you know, that that is just kind of there to be told. You kind of paint this picture of how like local politics work that is at least in, I want to say a lot of things I'm saying are in New York City. If you're living in, you know, a small village in upstate New York, I'm sure your politics are totally different. Although uh, having made the move from New York City to Long Island, um, these politics uh, radiate out from New York City and there's a lot of like pretty wild scandal politics. Oh, Long Island. City. Yeah, I mean, come on. George Santos, you know. Well, like, I think uh, I actually thought a lot about George Santos in relation to the story where like, you know, we're getting these figures where you're like, how many weird things can be in one person's past? I mean, some of this stuff is borderline criminal, but a lot of it's just pretty weird and like unexplained. Um, and it's sort of shocking that we can go so deep into some of our political figures and yet other people can slip through with uh, very little scrutiny. But I think your story effectively kind of shows how that happens because until you reach the point of actual power in New York, you describe Eric uh, Adams' term as the Brooklyn Borough President, which is a largely ceremonial role. And then there's this web of these sort of nonprofit funds and foundations that are themselves sort of a lot of fundraising and power brokering and stuff like that. And you start to see like how you build up the ground support that you would need to become mayor. And it's through a lot of things that aren't true, like governmental political power. They're like interpersonal relationships and being able to get people to go to some party. That's a fundraiser for some bizarrely named foundation. Yeah. I mean, I, we've kind of forgotten that like, you know, political machines, like they might not be like what they were, 
when Tammany Hall was like running New York City, but that they still exist, you know, that these like interlocking networks. And like, I think that's the other thing that, that made Whitehead, the Whitehead story um, interesting is like, you know, people say he's a bullshitter and he's definitely like talks a lot, but he kind of like, he has a sense, you know, of like what the overlapping worlds are. I mean, you know, he's in the church world, you know, he's friends with Eric Adams, he's in politics and he's also like in real estate, you know, and like the way that like community groups, business and politics kind of swirl together and what that swirl can create and the power it can sort of attract. And then the way that that power can be wielded, like, you know, he's not wrong to think that there's something there. Um, and, you know, and, and that is also the world that Eric Adams like navigates, you know, pretty successfully. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listen to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. <laughs> Because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. You've written also about national politics. How did you end up here? What what path led you to writing about uh, New York politics? You know, basically, it was partially pandemic driven. You know, I've been at The New Yorker for uh, a long time or starting to feel like a long time. And I, I started as a fact checker. And then uh, going into the 2016 cycle, the magazine needed 
extra hands editing. And I had done some political reporting for a website called Talking Points Memo um, before. So I basically spent the 2016 cycle and then the next couple of years, the first couple of years of the Trump administration editing politics pieces. And then going into 2020, you know, the magazine needed more politics pieces, like campaign pieces. And, you know, they offered me a chance to basically spend a bunch of 2019 traveling around, you know, in Iowa and South Carolina and other sort of early voting states and following the campaigns around. And so I basically spent 2019 doing that. And then the plan was for me to spend 2020, like, following the presidential campaigns and then the pandemic hit and kind of scrambled that. And then once it was over, it was like, okay, what next? And, you know, travel was still weird. And, you know, I've lived in New York since college, basically. And, you know, New York city writing, city writing in general is something that I, you know, was sort of what I was interested in since I was like a a teenager. And so I, you know, with my editor, we kind of like came up with the idea of like, well, let's, we could maybe do a New York column and write about the city. And, you know, it's, it's broader than just politics. I mean, I think really like the city, you know, has become a giant story and a very interesting story right now, just because of the way there was a two decade, almost unprecedented boom in New York city of explosion of wealth and construction and development and change. And then it ran right into like the crisis of urban space that like was the pandemic. And, you know, the the fallout of those two things of like the big boom running into the big crisis, you know, I think is just starting to play out. I think it's going to be just a huge story. And, you know, in 2020, when I was first talking about it with people at the New Yorker, like there was a mayoral election, Eric Adams starting to be on the radar. And so that was a kind of nice sort of transition sort of story where it was like, okay, I've been writing about politics. I can start writing about like this mayoral campaign and, you know, and, and sort of that, then we were kind of off and running, um, sort of writing about, about New York city and, uh, you know, and, and then sort of the last couple of years have just been, you know, trying to see how wide the aperture can be, like what other kinds of city stories can we fit in the column? What other kinds of stories can we do and, and sort of how big, how small, what shape, et cetera. I like that it's a column. I didn't actually, you know, when you're reading this stuff on the New Yorker reading backwards, it's hard to, it's hard to know what, what is what, but that totally makes sense to me. And having read a bunch of this, that this is sort of a column about New York city. When you're working on that columnist model where the pieces do interrelate to each other and they do present a holistic portrait of where New York is now and how it's changing but you can't expect that everyone has read all of them in order. How do you think about cutting that up and like dispatches that both have to stand alone and also tell a story together? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, you know, it, I, I feel like it's something I'm very much learning and, you know, I do think that there are some overarching, you know, sort of issues that I hope that each piece like kind of gets at in some way. I mean, I, I do think that this, you know, cities in general, like since the pandemic, like all over the country, you know, you ask people who live in cities, kind of does does your city feel different than it did before the pandemic? And they said, yes, like that's particularly true in New York. I think it's like people have this feeling of change, you know, if something's changing and kind of what is that? hopefully, and I'm trying to do better about making that kind of like a through line where it's like the pieces all kind of speak to that in some way. So it's like, if you read one or if you read 10, you're kind of like engaging with that question, which I think is a sort of interesting and important one. 
you know, I do like the idea sometimes of clusters of stories, you know, so it's like during the mayoral campaign, I did like a series of portraits, like kind of sketched portraits of four of the leading candidates and then Paperboy Love Prince, who was this sort of performance artist, activist in Bushwick, who who also ran for mayor. Um, and it was like, you know, sort of like in the course of six weeks, I sat down with Andrew Yang, Eric Adams, Catherine Garcia, and Maya Wiley. And I tried to just kind of quickly tell, capture a kind of what a conversation with them felt like in that moment, kind of what the broader things that they were dealing with were and tell a little story like through that. And, you know, if you were reading those one at a time, I think there was things that you could get out of that. But if you read them in order, I think like they could give you kind of a broad picture, you know, and kind of the breadth that you look for, like in magazine work, you know, if, if you just kind of were following them over time. Yeah, it's an interesting question, actually. Like, how do you regard an opportunity like that where you're like, all right, you got, you know, 60 minutes with each of these candidates and you're trying to produce something that shows people something they potentially haven't seen about this political figure. Like, what's your vibe in a situation like that? I just tried to think of one question. One question. Only one question that I wanted them to answer. Like, and that's how I pitched each of their campaigns. I was like, here's the one thing that I, I want to talk about and not feel like I had to sprawl. Like, here's one thing that I think I want to know. And hopefully, you know, then by extension, other people want to know or want to hear from this candidate, basically. And, the, you know, I, I pitched a bunch of the campaigns and a couple of the campaigns just declined. Just were like, we don't want to talk about that with you. And so it's like, well, I didn't do a story on their candidate. Uh, since we've already uh, talked a bunch about Eric Adams, what did you want to know from Andrew Yang? Um, I had followed Yang in Iowa when he was running for president. And, you know, I'd seen Andrew Yang in the room with people just totally winning people over in, you know, in the way that he can talking about automation and jobs and money. But I had also seen in Iowa, like that pitch translate to like zero votes. <laughs> and the thing that I, you know, I wanted to talk about with him was like, what is the political lesson? In that? You know, like universal basic income, like an idea that like people are interested in, want to talk about. But then they get to the voting booth, you know, or in Iowa, the, the caucus room, you know, and they don't they don't go in for you, you know. So so what is the thing that's missing between universal basic income and vote, you know, and that's the thing that I that we talked about. And how, how did he respond to that? I, you know, I, gamely. I mean, I think gamely. I mean, I, I think I think he he peaked higher, you know, relative to New York City than he did in Iowa. But in Iowa, he peaked pretty high. I mean, you know, it's like this is a, this is a guy who had no business running for president and did pretty well and, and put a bunch of issues on the table that, you know, I think were like people genuinely were grateful that he did, you know, like that, that he was talking about the things that he was talking about. And, you know, then he just got swamped in New York city. So, you know, he was game, you know, we had a very open conversation at a Taiwanese restaurant in Elmhurst where he was hanging out with some campaign folks, but like, you know, in the end, like he kind of, you know, he didn't have an answer for me. I, I don't think, but I think even he would say probably he didn't end up having an answer more broadly because the results were what they were. Yeah. One of the times I realized that I both don't know anything about politics and in fact have bad instincts was like, I really believed in Yang. Like, I, I'm not saying like I thought he should be president, but like part of what I realized I'm stupid about politics is that I'm have spent my, a lot of my life online and Andrew Yang is an online candidate. He's yeah. not at all the kind of candidate of what you describe of Eric Adams 
going to a bunch of fundraisers in Brooklyn and building up that kind of Tammany Hall style machine. It strikes me that that Tammany Hall style machine is almost harder to report on than national politics, right? Anyone can fly into Iowa and kind of play pundit and go, you know, he needs to appeal to these voters and blah, blah, blah. But to understand a Tammany Hall style system, it's really very complicated and has lots of players and roles. And there's a lot of smoke and mirrors and and different sources of power that you may or may not be aware of. Yeah, but I think I think primary campaign reporting at the presidential level is extremely hard. There are people who do it very well, who I really admire because I I was like, how do you get in here? What's real? <laughs> right. You know, right. like should I just report on Iowa? You know, should I just report on like I did a piece on um on regenerative agriculture, but that was not you know that was not about who was going to win the presidency. Like that was just a side story. And you know, in New York City. Yeah, like there's this trope, really, probably since the 70s, since the fiscal crisis, that like New York City is like ungovernable, you know, that it's too complicated. But like, you know, I think to me, like the thing is that the city is just both as a resident, like, you know, just because it's like this is the place that I live and sort of can observe and have observed and sort of can think about. But this is like, you know, eight plus million people cohabitating in a relatively small piece of land and how does that work you know and what are the consequences of that and all that i mean i find that stuff to be much more immediate and graspable than the kind of like what political idea will capture the imagination of people across the country you know i had a much harder time grasping that question you brought up the idea of sort of new york in crisis you know new york's being on the edge of collapse kind of and this idea almost feels cyclical, you know, New York almost falls apart and then it doesn't fall apart and it builds up and it prospers and then potentially it goes back into like a collapse cycle. I think I'm, I'm sort of keenly aware of this because I live uh, outside of New York City right now. So I hear about what people who live near New York City who never set foot in New York City think about it. And what do they and say? Like the guy who like fixed up the shed I'm in was kind of like, oh, God, like you'll get like shot if you set foot in the city. There's rampant shoplifting. But like there's probably some truth, like it's probably accurate statistically to say like shoplifting is up. But I would say it's inaccurate to say that the like city is on fire and on the very verge of collapse. Like, I guess I'm interested in how you sort of gauge the severity of a story like that and the fact that there are multiple true stories about New York happening at the same time, right? There are places in New York that are nothing like that. And there are places that are in sort of crisis and, and, you know, that are on, on the verge of collapse. I didn't really frame that very well into a question. No, it's a great question. I know it's something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, And, you know, you're totally right that the state of the city now, I mean, this was not evident in March, 2020, but like it's now almost March, 2023. And we can safely say that the challenges of the city and the kind of level of um, disrepair and, and neglect compared to the 80s or the early 90s, like, you know, I think nobody would compare like the New York of, of 2023 to the New York of 1993 and be like, it was better then, yep. you know, like, but, you know, if you only look at crime, it's too narrow a thing to look at. And that has led, I think, to a lot of 
it's just a lot of confusion, like a lot of noise. It's not that crime is not serious, not that people weren't more afraid of crime, you know, following the lockdowns in 2020 than they had been before. Like that's undoubtedly true. People more cautious about taking the subways. Um, I mean, the pandemic was like a, a particularly broad, horrible crisis, but it had followed on like Hurricane Sandy and the financial crisis and then 9-11, you know, it's like these other kind of city shaking moments and, you know, but the place that the pandemic has left us, which I think is different, is there's real open questions now about, in the way that there wasn't just a couple of years ago, about how we're going to live here, you know, both poor people and rich people, you know, how can you afford it? Where do you live? How does your life look? Where do you work? What do you do? You know, how do you get around, you know, like, and what the city owes to itself, you know, like the de Blasio years, like Bill de Blasio as mayor uh, made a series of pitches about what, what he thought the city should be universal pre-K, you know, like being the most famous that were sort of a call back to, you know, a lot of the social programs that the city gave up on in the seventies. Um, basically the city, you know, in the mid 20th century had, free college and a huge public hospital system, just all kinds of robust public works that then like the fiscal crisis hit and, you know, the city gave up on public housing, like a lot of different safety net and social net like sort of issues. And coming out of the pandemic, like all those things are kind of feeling back on the table. Like, you know, do we or do we not want or feel like we owe to like our fellow city livers, you know, certain things. Like what's the level of responsibility? What should the city be? That to me feels like, you know, I'd be, I'd be curious if it feels, if the view from Long Island feels similarly, but my feeling is like those questions are live now in a way that they just didn't feel quite so live pre-2020. You didn't grow up in New York City, correct? You're, no, I grew up outside Boston. Uh, Boston. Okay. So I grew up in the Bay Area and uh, San Francisco is a city that's asking some of the same questions right totally. and i have a little bit more stake in it i don't know why i guess it's probably because i've been able oh i know exactly why so you brought up 1993 and 2023 well i saw san francisco in 1993 so i have a grounding like in my own experience of what san francisco has been like for the last 30 years i grew up in berkeley but you know i, I would go to giants games and that kind of thing and when I'm there or I engage with people who live there in my family, this very, very quickly becomes uh, the central crises in San Francisco are homelessness and crime. And it's these, this is the fault of failed liberal policies or these liberal policies are trying to ameliorate this problem. And you should like shut up about, it, right. I don't take either of those tacks. I take, attacked very similar to what you just described where I'm like, wait, 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 what's our baseline here? Like is homelessness up? It feel, it feels like it's up, but I, I want to understand better what's really happening. But interestingly, politics can kind of obscure any sense of factual reality because no matter what, if you ask questions, you're seen as taking a side in that larger debate about what the city should do. Yeah. I think that the street homelessness question is like a, is a great example of this where it's like the thing that I think is being overlooked is that like the pandemic brought about like a renegotiation of public space in cities. Like 
outdoor dining meant that suddenly restaurants that had been inside were suddenly on the sidewalk and people who lived on the sidewalk were like, what are you guys doing here? I mean, I've talked to people who slept on the streets about this, you know, like rich people abandoned Midtown Manhattan for a number of months in 2020. There were poor people, desperate people who were living on those same streets that were empty during that time. And then suddenly like rich people like showed back up again and were like, cool, like this is ours again. And people were like, what are you talking about? I've been here. You know, it's like, you didn't ask me, you know, we didn't have a conversation about it. Like, how are the people in power approaching the, the people without power, you know, and has that changed? And it's like the pandemic, yes, like the pandemic changed, like the way that, you know, like we, the people were like treating the sidewalk, you know, and, and those things, I think we just haven't, like just starting to think through what the consequences of those changes are. When you're writing about New York City, do you imagine a city person reading your work or do you imagine someone in some small town somewhere in America who subscribes to the New Yorker and you are there like one dispatch into the city? I mean, I like, you know, I love the old school New York writing from the New Yorker. The AJ Liebling, Joe Mitchell, St. Clair McElway, like 30s, 40s city stories. And I read them when I was in college. Like I had lived outside Boston. I was like not in New York City for college. Like, you know, it's like I, I you know, I, I had experienced New York City as a tourist. And that's it. Um, and so I, I do think that like city stories, in particular New York City stories, can can transcend just New York City. That said, like there's lots of readers here. And like there's a cliche that like the media cares too much about New York City. I honestly think that like it's more likely that the opposite is true, that like New York City is so gigantic. I mean, it's the largest city in the country by like, you know, a large factor. And, you know, and then it's sort of metropolitan reach if you even want to like sort of talk about like greater New York City. I mean, we're talking about a huge chunk of the country here with a huge tug on how the rest of the country works. And, you know, it's huge. There's so many stories here. And it's like, even with a relatively still robust, like local press core, there's not enough reporters for how much stuff is happening in New York City. There's not enough eyeballs on kind of what's happening here. And what happens in New York, I think also ends up, I mean, like, just think about like the exportation of like Brooklyn and Brooklyn culture and like coffee shops and yoga studios and, and farm to table restaurants. It's like, you go to any city in the country. You know, when I was covering Iowa, there was a farm to table restaurant that I went to with some folks. It's a great restaurant called Cobble Hill, <laughs> like, which is a neighborhood in, you know, which is a neighborhood in Brooklyn. You know, like New York culture has far reaches and decisions that are made in New York have huge implications for like the rest of the country. Like I, like I think one of the biggest political moments was like early in the de Blasio years, I think it was 2014, when de Blasio tried to cap Uber's growth in New York City and Uber beat him back. And I think that that was a real signal that like, if New York City can't regulate Uber, then like nowhere is gonna be able to do it, you know? And like, and the guy, the consultant who helped Uber with that campaign, whose name is Bradley Tusk, uh, then later helped run Andrew Yang's campaign for mayor. You know, it's like these things have, I think, real significance and sort of interest beyond just like metro, I live in the city, kind of what's going on in my town sort of things. Like New York is, 
you know, I think where we can project a lot of like what the urban imagination is, in, at least in America, if not globally. I think that that concept that New York was overcovered, I think the actual peak of that was like maybe 2009. Like I associate that with like the Gawker blogging network era where it was like, oh, you're like a assistant at some media company. Like we're going to like publish like a scandal about you or something. And uh, sorry, this is not shade on people for doing that. That was also a viable business at that point. Like as you saw these different types of sites like Curbed, right, coming out, re writing about real estate, if you're going to do local editions, you always did the New York edition first. So New York got like a dedicated real estate reporter, you know, in New York. And it did at the time feel like, wow, like there's an article about the like restaurant on my corridor. We're really getting like a lot of coverage. All those are either out of business or like are on their third owner and like you know people are getting paid like 30 bucks for a story now and i don't think that that same thing holds and i think you know something like gothamist that felt like very small and like kind of almost grassroots when it started and the fact that gothamist was not a viable business suggests that there is very few viable local market reporting endeavors out there right now if new york can't support one no one can support one no i mean and i think about my own like trajectory my little generation of journalists who like it was easier to get jobs reporting on national politics than to get a job reporting on something that you could see and go to and like that is a really strange thing and like the relief and the joy that i feel like when i can just like you know, just take the subway 20 minutes to go see something interesting for a story or talk to somebody interesting or like explore physically and not just like feel like I'm making phone calls and like Googling. It's just, it's a very different kind of work, but it's just not something that was like super available, like because yeah, readers and money, you know, were gravitating towards like the internet media, like national news, like those are all kind of bigger picture, more spread out stories um, than just like, like city writing, city stories. Eric, I believe that we met once approximately 15 years ago-ish, maybe a little bit less, 12 years ago at an event. Uh, we went to the same uh, college and it was some kind of like digital alumni event. Uh, but I stored your uh, name in my memory and then I read something I thought that was great. And I was like, wait, I know that guy. And that's like a, that's a cool feeling. It's cool to see people, you know, go grow up and do cool stuff that you passed once in the hallway. I appreciate it. I, I wish I hadn't taken 15 years, you know? Thank you so much for this interview. I really appreciate it. Aaron, thanks so much for having me. That was the Longform Podcast. Thanks very much to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Susan Peterson for editing the show. Thanks to Megan Valley for the show notes. Thanks to everyone over at Vox Media who helped us make the show. We'll be back with a new episode next week.
Support for Longform this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free. Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. <laughs> 